The goal of Data Transformers podcast is to accelerate digital transformation by bridging the gap between business outcomes and rapidly advancing technologies. And we aim to bridge this gap by focusing on data. I am Peggy Sai, top 50 women in tech influencer, co-author of the AI book and data governance expert. I'm Ramesh Danta, an entrepreneur, a tech blogger, and AI enthusiast. Hi, welcome to another episode of Data Transformers. Today we have with us Christopher Berg, CEO and head chef and founder of Data Kitchen. Chris has more than 30 years of experience in research, software engineering, data analytics, and executive management experience. At one point of his career, he's been COO, CTO, VP, and Director of Engineering. So I'm really excited to have Christopher with us today and talk about his illustrious career. Oh, thank you. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. I'm very happy to be here. Welcome, Christopher. Yeah, thank you. So, Christopher, I think when anyone Googles you or looks up your name online, you're really the recognized expert on data ops. So, first of all, I think it um, be great for the audience to learn more and understand what is data ops. Yeah, I think the problems that data ops try to solve are, are very old and long standing with how teams work in a technically complicated system. And a technically complicated system could be a manufacturing line of a car, it could be building a software product, or it could be building something in data and analytics. And so the principles of how you manage a team to do that, how you help them focus on lowering errors, how you help them focus on cycle time, how you help them focus on collaboration, actually I think span manufacturing, span software development, and span um, data and analytics. And so in some ways, data ops is taking a set of ideas that were created elsewhere and are working elsewhere and saying, hey, they should work here. Um, and and uh, it sort of also spans my personal background. I grew up in a manufacturing part of the US, Milwaukee, and I spent 15 years kind of building software and running software teams. And so I think it's a, it's a, a set of sort of technical practices and cultural norms that focus on data and analytic teams, data engineers, data scientists, people that do governance or visual, visualization, and helps them focus on lower errors, um, helps them focus deliver things from their brain into production faster, and uh, really tries to address this challenge of, you know, we have, it's a team sport in data and analytics, and how do we all work together? So, Christopher, um, 2019 and uh, 2020 were the breakout years for DevOps. Right, so if you're in DevOps, you are a star and everybody was coming to you, right? And now suddenly we hear data ops. So can you contrast data ops with DevOps? Yeah, I think DevOps is really focused on people who deliver software, right? So they, they're digital, they're a website, they're a technical system. Um, and so software has one particular problem. I'm building an application and I wanna get my users to love it and use it. So it's much better to iterate quickly on the application, the front end, the back end, get user feedback, um, and then work on um, the systems that wish to make that happen. Now, data and analytics is like that, right? We have dashboards and visualizations, and we want to iterate so they can understand. Um, however, we've got this whole other problem, data, right? Because the data may not tell the story. 
um, it, that may not be predictive. What we think should be in the dashboard may not be supported by the data. So you've got two cycles going on, sort of a cycle of an application, if you will, that's um, being delivered to the customer. And you've got the sort of experiments, predictive, understanding data. And so while DevOps is focused on you know, software engineers and people in IT, data ops is focused on people who do data science and, and, and data and analytics. And um, the complexities, they're different, they're similar, right? They have, I think conceptually, they all come from the same idea, mm -hmm. you know, lean, deming and manufacturing, uh, agile DevOps and software and, and, and data ops and data and analytics. Um, but there's, there's uh, I think, pretty profound differences as well, really having to do with the prevalence of data and the way people work in data and analytics and the amount of uh, collaboration. Uh, because mostly everything that we do in data and analytics is not done by a small team. And uh, a lot of the work is done. There's a warehouse team, an MDM team, a data science team, a bunch of people doing self-serve analytics. It's sort of scattered around the organization. And that complexity is much more sort of many to many in uh, in data and analytics than just a development team and an operations team and, and excuse me in software I, I think um, Ramesh's question is pretty valid because I think many people are more familiar maybe perhaps with DevOps because it's something tangible right it's a it's a software product that they can see that's really being continually improved but as you said in data ops, data is less tangible, right? It's because it's spread out, it's stored in many different sources, applications, and so many teams are touching and using and improving data that there's not always a consistent um, thing that people are looking at seeing. So is data ops more of a process or is it an actual physical object that people can, can touch and build? Yeah, well, it's a, you know, we have a software company that has a data op software product. So it is a it is a set of software and there's a bunch of other companies who have similar software in that area. Um, but it also is an idea and a process, right, because it, it, it sort of rethinks how we work together. And so instead of taking three or four months to deliver something, you try to deliver it in a week and you try to iterate to improve upon it instead of um, putting something into production and just sort of hoping that your data providers give you good data and then your customers call you up a week or two later and say, this dashboard looks weird. Um, you know if it's uh, gonna work before it gets in production. And so it's, a, it's, a, it's less about kind of what we do as data and analytic teams than how we do it. Mm -hmm. And so that how is enabled by software and technology, but it's also an idea and a process. And so it's, um, the focus is less on like, are you using the right database or the right ETL tool, the right model? That's the what, you know, it's, it's how those things are, how you work as a team, how you deploy in production, how you run with low errors. And that's, it's a different mental focus, but it's definitely supported by, by software. So he, here I am, I'm reading the Gartner uh, re, recent trends report, and I come across this cross ops right, XOPS or whatever you call it, right? So with the AI ML just, you know, exploding uh, from its usage and all the stuff, then you have something called model ops, right? So you have the DevOps, you, you have a model ops, right? Because you have to do operational aspects in the models. You have to govern models and make, make sure that, uh, you know, they're going to the right workflow as well. And then we have a data uh, ops as well, right? So, so, so given this, 
again with Gartner coming out and saying that hey you know, this is the new trend cross ops is it so uh, have you seen a shift in momentum or shift in focus from the organizations to data ops i mean I'm not, i shouldn't say shift uh, increased focus on data ops as much as let's say people should focus devops is natural because as you said it's a software development people have to do it right model ops is something that's coming on the horizon because now they are understanding you have to you know you have to regulate govern models as well so what has been the change in focus on these different ops if you could compare and contrast and all these things please um well i think the biggest focus is you take a noun and you put the word ops on the end and you have a new category <laughs> that's a good one actually. <laughs> so I, I think that's really important that you know if you want to if you want to be cool you put ops at the end yeah <laughs> uh so um there's and there's other opses, right? Like uh, there's data gov ops, data governance operations. And so, uh, like I said, whatever you call the ops, the ops thing at the end of the word, whether it's DevOps or data ops or model ops, it all goes back to the same core idea, right? Of, of how you do it, um, principles for manufacturing and deming and lean theory of constraints, um, focusing on the system rather than a particular part. And I think that is, they're all, and so that XOPS idea is, is very much similar to the, how I started the discussion today, saying, look, there's a core idea. It, it's hard to manage people mm -hmm. and hard to manage people who are working on a technically complicated thing. And that thing is a manufacturing line, software, data and analytics work. And so there's a set of principles that we need to follow. And so uh, I think... Uh, if you focus it on data science, it's probably, you could call it model ops. If you focus it on data governance, you could call it data, data gov ops. I tend to use data ops as the all over category saying it applies to data science or data visualization or governance, just because we were early and no one else, you know, we, we tried different names like agile analytic operations or DevOps for data science and none of those names stuck. And so data ops is the default category. And I'm not um, particular about what word people use, but I, I am. I, I do think the reason why you want to focus on this operational stuff is because if you don't, you suffer. Yeah. Um, and that comes from my own personal career. And this, the reason we started the company, uh, my co-founders and I, is because we spent many years running data and analytic teams and, and failing miserably. After I think all of us had pretty good careers in, in software. And we thought it would be easy. And you know, data suppliers were giving us bad data. We get a call from someone saying it's wrong. Uh, my boss was continually looking down on me almost because it would take. I would put a data scientist and a data engineer and myself in a room, and we'd look at the data and we'd say, "Okay, we think this is going to take two weeks to analyze and prepare the work." Yeah. And he'd look at me and go, "Wow, I thought we, you could do that in two hours." <laughs> <laughs> And then like we had all these smart people, you know, they, somebody liked R, somebody liked Python, somebody liked Click, somebody liked Tableau. We had the visual U UI guys in ETL with the SQL people. And like, how, did I, how do you balance all that? So how do you go fast and innovate? How do you run a manufacturing line that produces Toyota, you know, Toyota cars and not AMC Pacer cars? Um, and then how do you fundamentally let people innovate uh, when they work in teams? And so... Those, I think, are problems that most data and analytic teams have. And it's a problem I had. And I think the principles in data ops um, uh, are the solution to that. 
Can you elaborate on um, some of these some of these key principles some more? So, if a, a new an organization that doesn't have this process data ops in place today, and I guess they are haphazardly working on all different types of data projects, like what what are key things that um, a data ops could, could help them improve on, or you know, what symptoms do you see in, in companies that need to use data ops? Yeah, we, we look for a couple of things. And I, I, I'm not sure companies work in a haphazard way, right? Because once you start having errors in production, you put processes around it, checklists, meetings, um, stage gate processes, technology review boards, uh, control boards to control that. And so the answer to errors is to wrap it up into a bunch of human process. Right. And, and, and managers have meetings and checklists. And then the people you have certain people in your organization who have the whole system in their head. And then they have to you have to ask them, hey, if I change this, is it going to break anything? Yeah. And so what happens is the, the you solve it with um, people's times and meetings and slowness. So symptoms that we see are companies that take literally three to six months to deploy 20 lines of SQL from their development environment and production. Not because they can't or it's chaotic, because they want to ensure that if there's thousands of people using this database or data warehouse that they don't have an embarrassing errors. So they have a lot of meetings and checklists and bottlenecks. And then other cases where people, um, they have a lot of problems in production and the data is wrong and they're just working nights and weekends. And they've come to accept that my lot in life is to leave this, my kid's soccer game on Saturday morning and go fix a data error. And it happens and like, okay, it happens once a month, I've got to go do it. And so I, I don't think those things, either of those things are an acceptable way to live. You shouldn't have to leave your kid's soccer game. Or I talked to one uh, man once, he was told me a story of sitting on the bathtub in his bathroom, fixing a data error while his kid's birthday party was going on. Wow. And like, we shouldn't have to live this way, right? And, and it's not part of the job. It doesn't make you great. Um, it's, uh, and it's the manager's job to help build a way of working that doesn't have that happen. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to work on occasional Saturdays or errors happen, it's data. Um, and I'm not saying you should be lazy, but I am saying your job as a leader is to build a system that allows your team to uh, make changes to whatever is in production quickly, not on the order of months, but on the order of days or hours and do and be able to put that in production and know that it's going to work ahead of time without a lot of meetings and talk. And then second, once it's in production, you should tell if, if it's going wrong, you should know if there's a problem before your customer sees it. And those two principles allow you to, uh, I think live a better life and actually you just end up delivering more value to your customer. Well, I think a lot of organizations put those meetings and checklists in place because those are the controls that they that they know about. I mean, I, I don't think they're just not aware of any other alternatives, I, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and that that's and that's the same position I was in, right? You started to say, Oh, I just gotta have more meetings and I gotta be a more manager and then you know, one of the cases is maybe it's, maybe it's, um, you know, Tom's fault. So I'm going to fire Tom. And if you start to sort of read the literature, like what Deming says is 94% of the problems are not a person. It's the system the person works in and who owns that system. Well, you as a leader own that system. So it's your obligation to improve it. 
And I've fired people probably by mistake because I sort of blame them for screwing up when in fact I should have built a system that allowed them not to screw up. And so a lot of times uh, the idea of synchronizing people and having people in different places, what we want is autonomy, right? We want people to be empowered to make changes but we want to build a system, a technical infrastructure around them to say, hey, if I made a change, what, what happens in the world? And, and, and am I going to, if I change a column on this table, what's the ripple across mm -hmm. the model, the visualization? How am I going to get that into uh, my, my data catalog and data governance? And, and that shouldn't have to be meetings and checklists and, and talk and your best people. That should be an individual contributor sitting down on a screen and saying, I just modified this column, hit a button. What, what, what did it affect in the world? And did anything break? And the software industry does that. And actually, if you look at good software companies, mm -hmm. they benchmark 22 year olds with a CS degree fixing a bug in a production system in their first week and deploying it to production. And how many data and analytic companies can, can do that saying, okay, you're going to go and make a tweak and you don't know anything, but you know, you're going to have this really small change, but the local change that you make, you can tell if it fixes, but we built this system that, you know, went all around you. It's a technology that it, you can tell if you've broken anything else. And so the characteristics of that system, I think are what data ops talks about. So, so coming to that uh, point of people. Um, so Christopher, so you have uh, within organizations, this MDM director, MDM roles, and you have a data governance, you know, person who is, you know, putting the structure together. Um, and then you have, you know, data quality, data stewards. So there are different roles like that. So how is the data ops a separate role? Or is it essentially taking a piece of each of these people's role and say there is a data ops component to each of these roles? Um, I think, honestly, I'm going to give you both answers. Um, I think for, by and large, the way we've seen it is, is people in data engineering and people in data science who have been burned and have realized that they need to build a process around them so they don't have to work nights and weekends and fail continuously. Um, there are other organizations who realize that there is a role called a data ops engineer, just like there's a role of a DevOps engineer. And actually, um, if you look at software companies and say, okay, of all the developers, the people who are creating new things, um, back when I was, uh, I managed software teams in 1999, I managed a team of 30, and there was one person out of that 30 who was called a release engineer, and they helped get it to our SaaS site. And they were paid less than everyone else. And, you know, they, they, they suffered nights and weekends. And we were like, oh, we're going to throw our code over them, right? And so uh, what's happened in the software industry now is 25% of most software teams are focused on the how to build software, the delivery, the testing, the um, cycle time, the error rates, those sort of things. And those are, quote, DevOps roles. And sometimes they're shared with developers or not. And I, I think of it's almost a, um, an allocation. You're building something next to what you're already running. You're building a framework, a system, a data op system to help you continuously deploy, to help you monitor and observe, to help you deal and, deal and collaborate. And those things are, it takes time and effort to do it. And so um, the investment in that, to say if you're gonna take 10 or 20% of your team to build a system just for, your other members of your team to be 
um, have more velocity, get more done. And the change in the software industry is so great that the those DevOps engineers honestly are paid more than the software engineers. Right. And because and some of the best engineers go to being DevOps engineers because they realize their leverage. If I can make it easy for someone to change something and I can do it quicker, the whole system's better. And so I think the mental challenge a lot of people have in data and analytics is they go to work with a backpack full of tasks. Yeah. And it's like, oh, and it's heavy, right? I've got, I got a model to tweak. I got a data set to get in. I got to do this. And you just want to pull it out. And your success at the end of the day is I've pulled out three things from my backpack. And that never ending treadmill with the heavy, uh, uh, heavy backpack full of tasks is it's hard <laughs> and it, you, you don't feel successful. And so the data ops philosophy is, is saying, okay, yeah, you have to do that, right? You've got to deliver, deliver value to customers first, but think about the system at which you do, uh, uh, work in and don't, and, and allocate some of your time to improve that system. Not all at once, but incrementally. And um, like the first step I took on my data ops journey in 2006, was I formed a quality circle. And mm. we sat around and had a spreadsheet and every time something went wrong in production, we made a row on the spreadsheet. Mm. That was it. Oh, the data was late, data provider X gave us wrong, something broke, you know, uh, and every three weeks we'd go through and look at it <laughs> and and change the, uh, change the tone of it. You know, I started to use this phrase, love your errors, mm. right? And, and look for patterns in the errors and you know what, automate it fix it so it doesn't happen again. Don't do a checklist or a manual process. Um, write a script, you know, write a test, yeah. a monitor. And you know what? After six months, a year, it got better. And after, and I also had to deal with the, the cultural change of how to get people to stop wanting to hide their errors. Yeah. And how do you, um, all of us have this fear in delivering data and analytics that we have put something in production for three months and it's wrong. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, what's nice about having that actually happen to you is, you know, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, and so like uh, my wife has this continual dream of taking a test and not showing up at the class. <laughs> <laughs> and it's one of her fears. And you know what? I wasn't, I had sort of a, a wandering youth and you know, I actually did that. I actually showed up for a test and, I hadn't gone to any classes and I didn't get a great grade, but it passed and I'm not proud of it. Um, <laughs> but like sometimes having the benefit of, of, of actually living it and knowing that, Hey, we delivered data that was wrong in front of thousands of people. And I had to go back and say, it's wrong. Damn. We know why. Uh, and, and the worst thing to say is we know why, and we hope it's not going to happen again. Yeah. The best thing to say is we know why, and we put a test so it's never happens again. And so I, I just think that that it's, it's very hard to take responsibility for what you do. And uh, a lot of people who work in data and analytics, unfortunately don't, they want to, they want to live in their world. I've got a little ETL. I throw it over the fence to production. I don't worry about the people downstream from me. And, and so it's a little, I think when you start to take responsibility and think of it as a system, I think you, you end up actually having a better it, it seems scary, but you actually end up having a better life because you start seeing the effect of what you're working with your team on. 
and you actually get more pleasure out of your work. And I find I find a lot of people who have masters in data science or data engineering who are kind of disappointed. They're like, hey, this is the sexiest job of the world. It's supposed to be fantastic. And you know what? I'm I'm doing data work. I'm responding to bugs. I feel I got my backpack full every day and I'm unhappy. And, you know, this great new role of a CDO that's happened in the last five or 10 years, their average tenure is two years. Two years, that's true. Yeah. And (laughs) that's not great, right? That they should be able to, uh, that's because they're coming in promising big things and they're not making it happen. And so I I think a lot of the root cause, and in my career, whether you call them data lakes or data warehouses, um, most data and analytic projects fail. And Gartner has said that 60, sometimes 80%. yeah. And and that's what business works with a failure rate of your product of over 50%. So it's, you know, it's, it's hard to face these problems, but I think it's important that we do as a, as an industry and as, as, as teams. Yeah. Christopher, I think you, you, you touched on, touched on a really lot of great um, insights, um, especially when it comes to, you know, data literacy and data culture and really accepting um, moving fast, failing fast, and then moving on. And I completely agree with you, certainly from, you know, a data perspective, there's an expectation. I mean, the the mindset of data engineers are sometimes they're perfectionists, right? So it's um, they really want to prove themselves as you know being 100% correct all the time. Um, yeah, and correct for everyone. Correct for everyone. Yes, exactly. Yeah. A part of a larger, you know, one thing I always see data engineers fail at is that they don't see the the business impact or the outcomes of what they do. And again, part of being a larger system, I think, um, is a failure. I think on behalf of the executives of the organization, not really explaining that, so. Yeah, um, yeah, and I also think it's, uh, there is a role in an organization for data engineers to ha- make perfection, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there is a role for data engineers to get in the ballpark of being right. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times analytic insight is in aggregate over hundreds or thousands of things. So if you get one or two wrong, it makes no statistical difference to the aggregate. And so, however, if you're producing a sales compensation and you get one or two reps wrong, they're gonna have noise and it's gonna be problems. So there is a place for perfection and, and there is a place for getting it kind of in the ballpark right because you're uh, focused on statistical um, and analytic insight. And so I think it's important part of a culture to know where things are are right, and I think like the MDM example, there's a case where you want to have your cust your um, customer mastered perfectly, perfectly, exactly. right? Because you're, um, and there are other cases where ah, you know I'm trying to figure out how to uh, resegment my customer base, and or I'm trying to figure out how to like look at my customers and my prospects together and see where the trends are. Does it matter if you know one or two customers falls in or out? Probably not. And so the degree of perfection, I think, is important. And finally, the last degree of perfection is what you present in front of your customer. I think one of the quotes that we like to say is get it 70% right and get it in front of your customer quickly. And and if they understand that you're getting it to them 70% right, and maybe the data is a little wrong, but they give you feedback. And one of the biggest challenges from any, and I'm an engineer, I've written you know, I spent years writing code of all types. Um, 
is I want to go off in my cave and write code for three months. And I actually, I find that fun. Um, it's nice to actually have quiet days. Um, and But the problem is you may think that you need to do 10 things. But when you present it in front of a customer, they may tell you, after all that time, you've done the 10 things, you present it in front of the customer, they go, ah, you know what, I didn't want five of those. And I want two more. That's why we have Agile. So we don't have that's to wait. That's exactly right. That's why we have Agile, right? Because you, you just don't know um, what they want. And don't try to figure it out. And you're not smart enough. And like, not no one's smart enough. It, it's You have to be humble in the face of your understanding of the world. And giving little increments of value to your customer. And I think of the process of help, of delivering insight to customers as a random walk because you're kind of here's what i think you want what you said oh let me let me change it a bit is this what you said is this what you said and at, the faster you can make your jumps on the random walk the closer you get the value great thank you for listening to today's episode if you liked what you heard today and would like to hear more please subscribe to our podcast on your favorite player like iTunes and Spotify. And please do rate our podcast. Also, please go to our website, www.datatransformerspodcast.com for more episodes, blogs, and information on our speakers. Thank you.